Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On a cold January afternoon in 1649, Charles I, King of England, Ireland, and Scotland, was executed by his own subjects. His crime? High treason. This unprecedented act rocked the Three Kingdoms and the fledgling British Empire, and followed ten years of rebellion, revolution, and civil war. Pax Britannica, a history podcast on the British Empire, covers these incredible events, complete with interviews with world-leading experts on the period. Find Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link pax. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 231, The Second Crusade, part 1. Who goes along with King Louis will never be afraid of hell. His soul will go to paradise, where angels of the Lord do dwell. Edessa is taken, as you know, and Christians troubled sore and long, The churches there are empty now, and masses are no longer sung. O knights, you should consider this, you who in arms are so renowned, and then present your bodies to one who for you with thorns was crowned. The sack of Edessa in 1144 caused great distress back in Western Europe. Pilgrims had been heading to Jerusalem for four decades now, safe in the knowledge that their own countrymen would be standing at the gates to greet them. The astonishing success of the First Crusade had seemed to confirm that God wanted a Christian kingdom in charge of the Holy Land, and the fall of Edessa was a challenge to his will. A challenge that good Christians must meet head-on, giving their lives, if necessary, to restore the situation. The organization of a second mass-armed pilgrimage essentially confirmed crusading as an ongoing concern, with rules and regulations and the promise of more in the future. Influential churchmen began to establish an ideology of crusading, and with it popular devotional activities, like the song I read out at the start of the episode. It was called Knights. Much is promised, 
and began to circulate after the crusade was preached in France. It was sung by court singers and troubadours, and eventually the soldiers themselves, as they began the long march for Constantinople and beyond. Obviously, it was a French song that has been translated. As we saw with the First Crusade, this was not just a popular movement. Any endeavour on this scale required plenty of central planning, and once again the politics of the day played its part in getting the idea off the ground. You may recall that when Pope Urban called the First Crusade, he was struggling to enter the city of Rome amidst various disputes, and the sitting pontiff in 1144, Eugenius III, had similar difficulties. The crusade, therefore, offered the opportunity to demonstrate a wider authority and to seek the support of French and German nobles against the intransigence of those on the Tiber. Urban had also sought out a major French aristocrat in Raymond of Toulouse to spearhead his campaign, and Eugenius did the same, though he had an even bigger figure in mind in the shape of Louis VII, the King of France. Louis was only 25 at the time, and was filled with a combination of sincere piety and youthful adventurism that made him the ideal recruit. King and Pope swapped letters back and forth over the course of the next year, and it wasn't until Easter 1146, 16 months after the fall of Edessa, that the preaching of the crusade really got underway. This crusade was, to some extent, easier to preach than the first had been. Edessa's fall was a clear casus belli for action, and the popularity of stories about the First Crusade meant everyone knew what they were signing up for. Many of the French soldiers who answered this call were descendants of the men who'd captured Jerusalem in 1099. The Pope was also able to tighten up the rules of crusading to aid the recruitment of suitable men. Guarantees were given that the Church would protect the property and families of those who departed. Lawsuits would be temporarily suspended and debts forgiven. The language around remission of sins was also clarified. Anyone who completed this mission or died trying would be forgiven for every sin which they had confessed. We'll discuss the response in Byzantium to all of this soon, but as you might guess, news that the French king would be leading a huge army into the empire was greeted with trepidation. So imagine the reaction when word reached Manuel that Conrad, the German emperor, would also be joining the crusade. Pope Eugenius did not stop after securing King Louis' support. He sponsored men to preach the crusade far and wide, including in Germany. Conrad was much older than Louis, but was also sympathetic to the fate of Outremer. It was no easy thing, though, for him to leave his homeland. He was an elected monarch rather than a hereditary one, and he had powerful regional rivals to contend with. Men like Welf, the Duke of Bavaria, might take advantage of his absence. So when Welf himself announced that he would be going to the Holy Land, it made it that much easier for Conrad to get on board. On the 27th of December, 1146, the August Emperor of the Romans, as Conrad styled himself, took the cross. 
news that a new crusade was being preached in Western Europe was greeted with horror in Constantinople. This new enterprise had nothing to do with them. Manuel hadn't asked for reinforcements, and Byzantine diplomats had never suggested that a repeat of the original 1097 campaign would be a good idea. In fact, it's pretty clear that the Romans believed that the First Crusade was simply an aberration, a mercenary expedition that had gone wrong. Remember that until this moment, crusading was not a thing. There was no First Crusade. Nobody called it that. The most popular contemporary history of that campaign was simply known as the Deeds of the Franks. It's true that Bohemond and others had taken up arms under similar arrangements, but none of those endeavours enjoyed the kind of popular support that the 1097 campaign had. Also, that campaign had ended in success. Jerusalem was back in Christian hands. Without that goal, to move men's hearts, it seemed unlikely that anything like it could happen again. The last 40 years of imperial diplomacy were built on the idea that the Crusader states were vulnerable outposts that would ultimately be absorbed by Byzantium. As we've seen over the past few episodes, Edessa and Antioch were unable to properly defend themselves. It was only natural that they should first become Byzantine protectorates, then perhaps their leaders would marry into the imperial family, and then eventually they would just return to being Byzantine cities. It was important that this was all done tactfully and patiently. There was no point in angering the nations of Western Europe by being aggressive, uh, but when the Byzantines imagined Latin anger, they saw it in terms of attacks on their Balkan provinces, not in a new mass recruitment to provide Outremer with fresh manpower. As news filtered in that tens of thousands of men and women were once again willing to march east, it began to dawn on the Romans that they were facing an ongoing challenge to their authority, one that could do serious damage to the empire and was largely out of their control. Now, some of you might be thinking, hey, come on, guys, turn those lemons into lemonade. Why not see a new crusade as a good thing? Huge Christian armies are on their way. You don't even need to pay them. They're willing to fight the Turks for free. Just direct them to Iconium and convince them that once they destroy the Sultanate, the path for pilgrims will be clear. Then they'll move on to Edessa and you can reoccupy Anatolia and everything will work out great. Unfortunately, that well had been thoroughly poisoned by the actions of Bohemond and his family. The Byzantines had no faith that the Latins would honour their word. Encouraging them to capture strategic fortresses in Anatolia was just an invitation to create a new crusader state on the empire's doorstep. We look back now and see the Turks as the real threat, but at the time, the crusaders were far more likely to capture Constantinople than the nomads. For all their military skill, the Turks were still seen as barbarians. They weren't particularly skilled at siege warfare, and they had no ships. They were also governed by tribal infighting that could ultimately be exploited from the outside, whereas the Latins were a real menace. They had ships, 
they had siege engines, and now they had an opportunity to march unopposed to the gates of New Rome. Manuel seems to have given little thought to the idea that he could manipulate this new crusade for his own ends. Instead, he focused his energy on working out the best way to reduce the amount of damage that they could do. Initially, Manuel thought the campaign would be an exclusively Frankish undertaking, as the First Crusade had largely been. He wrote letters to both the Pope and King Louis, expressing his delight that a new campaign was underway. He said that he too had just been fighting the Muslims and welcomed Western aid. He said he was happy to feed the crusading army while it was on his territory, but he would like some assurances of peaceful conduct and that leading nobles would swear oaths to return any captured cities to Byzantium essentially the same deal that Alexius had offered the First Crusaders. This was all nodded along to, though nothing was formally agreed. King Louis's presence at the head of the army presented a new problem. The Romans could hardly ask a king to swear loyalty to another monarch. They were also worried about the friendly relations which Louis enjoyed with the aristocracy of Outremer. All the rulers of the Crusader states were French, and some were directly related to the king. Count Raymond of Antioch, for example, was the uncle of Louis's wife. It seemed unlikely, therefore, that the French king would take the Byzantine side in, say, a dispute over Antioch. Louis was also on good terms with Roger of Sicily, who, as a Norman, had strong connections to the French nobility. The one victory the Byzantines could cling to was that they managed to exclude the Italian Normans from the Crusade. Roger had offered his ships to Louis to take him to the Levant, but the size of army that was forming was just too big for any regular fleet to carry. And since the papacy was on bad terms with the Normans anyway, it was easier to shut them out. When Conrad announced his intention to join the mission, things became even more complicated for Byzantium. Louis, as king of the French, was a higher level of dignitary than Constantinople had ever had to receive before, but as a king, he still ranked lower than an emperor, so an order of precedence could still be maintained. But what do you do with a fellow emperor? How do you force him to acknowledge, as all men must, the seniority of the Vasilevs. Conrad was also a Byzantine ally. His sister-in-law was Manuel's wife, so in theory the two sides were happy to cooperate. But the main reason that that alliance was so important to the Romans was the threat that Conrad presented to the Normans of Italy and Sicily. Conrad was now planning on leaving Germany for up to two years to go to the Holy Land, leaving the Normans with a tremendous opportunity to attack Byzantium. This really was developing into a nightmare for Manuel. Both armies made preparations to march for Constantinople in the summer of 1147, and Manuel had to scramble to make sure he was ready. He had to find enough food to feed about 60,000 people, which was the latest guesstimate he was hearing. Then he had the walls of Constantinople thoroughly inspected and repaired, 
just in case things blew up and the Latins tried to take the city. Finally, and most controversially, Manuel accepted a peace offer from the Sultan of Iconium. The truce was signed and was to last for 12 years, and was obviously designed to allow both sides time to regroup and prepare for the arrival of the Crusaders. When the Latins heard that the Emperor had made peace with the Muslims, they were understandably furious. But in Manuel's defence, that autumn, as Conrad marched across the Balkans, the Normans of Sicily launched an attack on Byzantium. We'll focus on these events in a future episode, but the Normans would capture the island of Corfu and use it as a base to raid the undefended cities of Greece. Manuel had withdrawn his troops from the frontiers to defend his capital, and just as he knew they would, the Normans took advantage of the situation. Under the circumstances, with Latin armies surrounding him, a truce in Anatolia, one that might protect the undefended Byzantine cities there, seemed a wise choice. And needless to say, the nuance of international diplomacy was lost on many in the crusading army. The German contingent arrived first, crossing the Danube in early August. The best guess of modern scholars is about 30,000 people, many of whom were non-combatants or unseasoned foot soldiers. They began to make their way down the main military road which took them from Nisch to Philippopolis to Adrianople. Byzantine markets were waiting for them, but inevitably there were violent incidents at various points. This was not an organised army as such, and Conrad couldn't control the behaviour of everyone. Lack of discipline or lack of supplies led some Latins to simply seize what they couldn't afford, while some Byzantine merchants tried to gouge the newcomers by raising their prices. The most serious incident occurred at Adrianople, when some unscrupulous Roman soldiers robbed and killed a sick crusader who was convalescing at a nearby monastery. The future emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, who was serving with Conrad, raced to the scene and took revenge by burning the monastery down. The local Roman commander had to step in to calm things down. At this stage, the crusade leaders were determined to retrace the exact route of their forebears, and so the idea was that Conrad would camp outside the walls of Constantinople and then wait for Louis to join him. But Roman ambassadors met the emperor at Adrianople and tried to persuade him to change his plans. They argued that he should head further south and cross to Anatolia nearer the Hellespont. Their argument was that this would see the Germans enter safe imperial territory in Asia and avoid bleeding Thrace dry before the French arrived. But Conrad disagreed and continued on towards the Bosphorus. When he caught sight of the Queen of Cities in September, he was greeted by the cream of the Roman army who were camped outside the Theodosian land walls. Manuel was taking no chances. The Germans moved over to the other side of the Golden Horn and set up their camp there. Messengers went back and forth over the next few days but couldn't reach an agreement. Conrad wanted Manuel to come out and meet him, but the Emperor refused. Manuel wanted Conrad's men to swear oaths of loyalty, but Conrad refused. 
The problem of having two emperors come face to face seemed insurmountable. Neither wanted to be put in a position that might imply that the other was the senior figure. That might sound petty, but Conrad's position, as I mentioned earlier, was far from secure. Some of his major rivals were marching under his banner, and he couldn't afford to lose face. The Romans were desperate to get the Germans across the waters to Anatolia as quickly as possible, in part because of supply issues, but mainly because they didn't want the Crusaders to join forces outside the gates of their city. Eventually, the Byzantine army provoked some Germans to attack them, and the result was a stinging defeat for the Crusaders. Our historian John Kinemos is particularly smug about this, reporting that though the Roman army was smaller in number, it was superior in military science. The ill-disciplined German recruits had clearly rushed into the disciplined Byzantine lines, and then the empire's nomad mercenaries had peppered the Latins with arrows until they retreated. Or, as Kinemus puts it, the Romans scientifically resisted and slew them. Conrad was not involved in this skirmish, and when he discovered what had happened, he agreed to take his men across the Bosphorus to avoid further bloodshed. After being ferried over, the Germans refused to negotiate with the Byzantines. Manuel did offer to forge a plan of campaign against the Turks, but Conrad wouldn't listen. Instead, he took his army on to Nicaea, and then immediately set out towards the east. Conrad would follow in the First Crusade's footsteps and head for Dorylaeum. Manuel strongly advised against this and encouraged him to wait for the French to arrive. But Conrad's army was urging him on. The glory of this mission would be all theirs if they set off early. Meanwhile, King Louis and the French were only a few weeks behind. They crossed the Danube in late August and had a less troubled march across the Balkans, in part because the Frankish contingent seems to have been more disciplined and were possibly smaller in number, maybe twenty to 25,000, based on modern guesswork. The local Byzantines had also learnt a harsh lesson from the passage of the Germans. Many towns shut their gates to the Franks and would only sell them food by lowering supplies in buckets from the walls. Clashes still occurred, but when the French arrived at Constantinople, relations between the two sides were friendlier. King Louis entered the city and received a royal welcome from Manuel. The king was given a guided tour of the city and its many relics, and the Byzantines made sure that the army outside were fed and entertained. There were those in the French camp who hated the Romans and suggested launching a sneak attack, but Louis was having none of it. The French were then shipped across to Anatolia, at which point Manuel began negotiations about how the crusade would proceed. This was typical Byzantine diplomacy, and it annoyed the Franks. Having been all sweetness and light when the Latins were camped outside the walls of Constantinople, the Byzantines were much firmer once they were safely across the sea. This included threatening to cut off the food supply if the emperor didn't get what he wanted. Emmanuel asked Louis's barons to swear oaths of loyalty to him, and again promised to hand back any towns they took. Reluctantly, they agreed, and the emperor came out to Nicaea to greet his new liegemen. 
The Vasilevs also warned Louis not to march directly into Turkic territory. Much better, he advised, to use the route the Byzantines took when travelling to Cilicia. This meant going south along the west coast of Anatolia to Ephesus, then up the Meander Valley onto the plateau at Sozopolis, and then south to the port of Atalia. Though this route was still exposed to Turkic attack, it was far safer than the alternative. King Louis wisely heeded this counsel, and its wisdom was confirmed shortly, when Conrad appeared back at Nicaea, tail firmly between his legs. The German emperor had lost thousands of men in a brutal confrontation with the Turks, an episode which we will discuss next time. In part two, we'll see how the rest of the Second Crusade played out. As you've probably figured out by now, Conrad and Louis are going to have a very tough time. The Turks had been here before and knew exactly what the Latins were all about. If you have some time to fill before the Crusade resumes, then why not check out Pax Britannica, a podcast charting the rise and fall of the British Empire. Sam Hume is an excellent host, and in addition to giving you a narrative history, he's also gathered an amazing array of experts who he's interviewed, taking you in-depth on the origins of empire. Find Pax Britannica wherever you get your podcasts, or visit paxbritannica.info. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.